0: Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Conspire A Theory. I have with me, Tom Whitmore. How are you doing, Tom?
1: Just fine, Chris. Thank you for having me today.
0: Yeah, it's great that we finally get to cross paths and I finally get to to tie you down and and finally get to interview you because I've been meaning to reach out to you for quite some time.
1: I'm glad you did, and here we are.
0: I understand you've been with MUFON for quite a bit and have quite a bit of history. Could you touch into that for us, please?
1: Chris, I I got interested in UFOs when I was only 12 years old, and I'm actually 69 now, Uh, but I didn't get active until the very late 80s, and I um, started reading up on UFO books. I did a lot of reading, and I found out about MUFON, and I I found out that MUFON uh, was actually headquartered in Seguin, Texas, when Walt Andrus was uh, running the organization. So uh, they had their local meetings here in San Antonio, and I was able to attend. And I, uh, you know, got to, got to know Walt Andrus. He got to know me. And uh, after a while, after several years, he actually invited me onto the board. That was around 1995. Um, when I got into MUFON, I I studied the field investigator's manual and I took the field investigator's exam and I went on several cases, uh, but after several years, like I said, Walt Andrus invited me on the board, and I've been on the board ever since, since about 1995. So I've been active in the UFO field now, you know, 30 plus years, and I've been on the board for a very long time. Um, Walt Andrus was the first director, and uh, he handed it over after he retired. He from MUFON, he handed it over to John Schuessler in uh, in Colorado. After that, uh, we had James Carrion be the executive director for a couple of years, and then a person by the name of Clifford Cliff took it over for a while. And Dave McDonald in Cincinnati was an executive director, and then Jan Harzan. Um, we had an incident with Jan Harzan; he had to resign. And now Dave McDonald is back running the organization from Cincinnati. So I've been through the whole, I've been through the whole since history since around 1995.
0: Yeah, that's very humbling that it has to sort of Texas start as you you will. I find that very interesting, especially being a local Texan myself.
1: Yeah, uh, Walt Andrus was an executive, I think with Motorola or some large corporation. And they had a plant, uh, a manufacturing plant in Seguin, Texas. So that's how he ended up there. The original MUFON group started out in the Ohio, Illinois area. Uh, mm-hmm. They they first called themselves the Midwestern UFO Network, and then they changed it to the Mutual UFO Network. And I don't, I don't know if they were thinking about becoming an insurance company or what, but uh, mm-hmm. we've stuck with that name. It's It's well known now, and it's certainly yeah. our brand. It's
0: our brand yeah i mean when as far as uh the ufo ology as a whole um mufon does have sort of a bit of a name brand staying power i know that there have been a few controversies that have come as of late i don't want to get too into those into the, into the weeds on that one we could probably do that on another show if you wish or or if not at all but the thing is is that as i've noticed it's sort of been a sort of uh, a go-to as far as reporting and recording your, your accounts and sightings and stuff like that for UFOs specifically, as I've noticed, you know, even in, in the past, I've noticed that like it does have this sort of checkered history where some people go to it and they get disgruntled because they think that it's, it's there specifically to serve their purpose you know like a lot of people i've noticed uh they'll they like they'll have a program or something and i guess they expect well this is in the same venue as the mufon so they should support me and then when they realize it doesn't quite work that way then they end up you know uh having a lot of spite for the company which i i feel at times can be quite unfounded because there is although although it does have sort of history and and limited structure there's really not a lot that that you can expect it to do unless you're really bringing a lot to it from the inside.
1: Well, MUFON is a it's a volunteer organization. We only have a couple of paid staff. The uh, we the executive director earns a salary. We have an office manager and we have a lady that was the office manager that's now. Uh, organizing and running the symposiums, which is a huge job in and of itself. And then maybe another part-time person that comes in to help in the office. But other than that, everything is volunteer. One of the misconceptions out there, like the other day, I heard somebody say that people pay to be on the board of directors. Well, I, I have spent many thousands of dollars of my own money in travel expenses going to symposiums and going to board meetings and I'm a volunteer. I don't get paid anything for that. And I think that people need to under one thing they need to understand about Mufon if they're getting into being a field investigator or getting involved in the organization is you you have to approach it from a volunteer perspective and you have to be doing it because you want to do it because you like doing it because you love investigating or researching or working with other people in the field. Because you're passionately interested about UFOs, if you if you go into it with the attitude of what can MUFON do for me, what can MUFON give me, then, you know, I think you're going to get into that, that syndrome that you just mentioned of people expecting a lot from MUFON and then being dis- disappointed or disgruntled.
0: Yeah, I find that quite un- unfortunate because there are a lot of helpful programs out there for, you know, experiencers and as well as researchers and stuff like that. And you know there is a lot of cross pollinization, but that doesn't mean that there needs to be strife between the organizations
1: well the the u f o public now is is really wide open with social media, and it used to be when I got into uh the u f o field actively it was the internet was just beginning to take off you know beginning to get started but before that every Everything was typed out on typewriters or word processing machines, and uh, it was a different world back then. And now, uh, with, with social media, um, anyone can enter the conversation. You, can, you have people that really know very little about the subject, and they can go out and express their opinions. I mean, it's a free country, okay? But you also have serious people, serious researchers that have been in the field for many years and know how to investigate and know how to research. So, you know, those are two opposite extremes. But it is a, it is supposed to be a free country, and we have freedom of speech. Uh, we should have freedom of nope, thought. For we now. Have, <laughs> for for yeah. now. I joke yeah, about. well, that's, that's another issue. Yeah, that's, that, another, that's issue. another debate. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we should have a free flow of ideas and exchange of ideas. And one of the reasons why I do these podcasts and these, these shows, uh, Chris, is – I'd like to be part of the conversation. And and that's what I see this as being is, is it's all one big conversation.
0: Yeah, I can understand that as well. That's probably why I started the show is I, too, wanted to be part of the conversation, although I'm not going to claim I'm, I'm a big part of the conversation because let's face it, I'm, I'm probably I probably have no idea what I would say to someone like Lou Elizondo or a Stephen Greer or someone of that nature, I don't know what I would talk to them about, but anyone else coming into the field or other researchers, other experiencers, I would love. I love absolutely sitting down with them and discussing their experiences. And, you know, cause this is a very uh, wide branching topic that goes across, you know, social and economic and, and class and status. Pretty much everyone is almost hit with, uh, with either UFOs or be it uh, alien encounters or some form of high strangeness.
1: There's a lot of it going around. Uh, I haven't had any experiences personally myself, and I kind of joke that if you don't want to see a UFO, then you should you should hang around me. Mm-hmm. But, but there are a lot of people out there that are seeing things or experiencing things, and, and it's an issue.
0: I was about to ask you that, too, if you've had any other personal experiences, because I've noticed for some uh, people, that is usually the catalyst that uh, parallels them and pushes them into this field. My personal experiences have been very minor and mild in comparison to some of the ones that I've heard of uh, some of my peers. So it, it is very interesting and, and quite says a lot that even with no real um, or or experience catalyst, being the catalyst for your interest, that you are coming in here and taking your time and spending your time and resources to, you know, push this field forward. I, I really do admire that.
1: Oh, thank you. I I have more of an intellectual uh, interest in the field. I, I started out by reading Donald Kehoe books in the 1960s and uh later on i I've, done, I've always read a lot of history uh especially european history and i i became interested in the soviet union and the cia and all that and i really became extremely intrigued with espionage and tradecraft and spying and intelligence and in the 80s uh there was a program called ufo cover up live and your conservative ufo people look askance at it they they deride it but they in the program they were they were talking about how the u.s government had a super secret program and they were in contact with aliens and they described the anatomy of aliens and this is in the 1980s and you know that intrigued me because when it comes to the government uh keeping secrets uh, engaging in uh, intelligence activities, engaging in espionage, that that really interests me. And uh, that, that's the angle that I take on all this.
0: Yeah, I find that quite interesting. And even from a speculator's uh, point of view, there is certain plenty of evidence to show that there is a lot of cloak and dagger happening with, you know, various governments in the world, as, but not just our own, but even our own, course, keeps its secrets, you know. And just to illustrate that point, just bring up any controversial topic and and ask a little too much. And then, you know, coincidentally, you know, it's very easy for people even in this electronic age to be silenced, you know, especially with how free and open we can talk. You know, that spigot can easily be shut off. And even though it may not be, quote unquote, directly from the government, there are a lot of, I guess, corporate um, tentacles and tendrils that, you know, end up doing the dirty work for, you know, whoever the nefarious parties are in whatever scenario that we can find ourselves in if we tend to poke around a bit too much?
1: Well, what governments do is they engage in information management. They have to manage uh, the public perception of what the government is doing or not doing. And that can range from just outright propaganda and lies, like in Nazi Germany, to a more sophisticated level of of information management and perception management and what Susan Goff in the Pentagon refers to as strategic influence. And the name of the game is to have the public perceiving what the government needs it to perceive, perceive so that the government can conduct its business and its programs in the way that it wants wants to without too much outside interference. And that's what we've seen in the UFO field. Mm -hmm. Since the 1950s, the Air Force has engaged in an information management program. And during the years of Blue Book, uh, the Air Force actually got to the point where their explanations for many good UFO sightings were, were really quite absurd that didn't match the the case at all. And uh, somehow the government or the Air Force or the Pentagon managed to get the mainstream media to poo-poo the UFO subject. And so for many, many years, we had a situation where the press either wouldn't cover the UFO subject, or if they did, uh, they would be derisive uh, and make fun of it. And then on the government side, on the Air Force side, they explain it away or play play it down. And this is the kind of situation that we've had basically for 70 years.
0: Yeah, something that I've noticed as well is, the, of course, the hush-hush in the early um, – I remember in the early 90s, there was still a bit of ridicule factor, although when it was played out, it was done so cessationally from cable news programs. Um, and then today – they'll say that it's almost like a 180, but I can understand, you know, from, a I suppose I'm just speculating strategically in the early days of, of you know, from the fifties on to, I would say about the nineties and stuff like that. I can understand the government not wanting people to talk about lights in the sky, especially if there's, um, experimental aircraft going on, be it ours or whoever's, you know, cause that could like give away strategic, uh, strategic uh, locations and and stuff like that. Now, in today, they sort of have a sort of if you're going to talk about it, talk about it from the from this branch or go here if you want to discuss it. You know, it seems to be a bit complete, like 180 from what we've seen before. Now, some people would say that that applies only to UFO sightings and not experiencer accounts and such like that. But i can understand you know we'll probably get to that bridge when we cross it but i find it interesting now that that they seem to be a bit more or the i I don't know if the word is lax when it comes to um the ridicule factor although i feel today's news media mainstream news media out of habit does have a bit of uh tongue-in-cheek when it comes to reporting this stuff because that's the way it's been for so long, and I feel that they simply are um, out of practice when it comes to, like, taking it seriously. But when it comes to, like, anything like now, I can understand from a strategic point, like, yeah, they probably want to keep eyes on everything in the sky, especially with so much cross-drone traffic now, which is commercially available. So that way, you know, if there is someone out there keeping an eye, a big eye on everything to eliminate, you know, what's commercial, stuff like that. What is someone messing around? What is ours? And then what could be a third-party
1: actor? Uh-huh. Yeah, there has been some project uh, pro- progress uh, in, in the press, in the media, in terms of uh, taking UFOs a little bit more seriously. But you'll notice that uh, the terms that are being used are threat, or are they Russian or Chinese or are they drones? Uh, they're nowhere near to the point of using the word extraterrestrial or complete unknown or alien or any of that. But I think we have made we have made some progress in that area. It's not that I have anything to do with it, but I think through the efforts of Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon and others, perhaps in the Pentagon. Um, you know, some progress is being made.
0: Yeah, there is still a bit of a conversation and, and a debate there whether or not opening some doors has closed some windows and whether or not some people, you know, uh, sidelining and opening new projects has led to other people, you know, either getting, you know, front row seats to or having been the first in line to get their projects, you know, funded or, or when when the trough comes around that they're set up first to feed of something of that nature. And I guess that's sort of just a general back and forth you know because we're gonna see that in pretty much every aspect of of government,
1: yes, and I think that's absolutely true, and where the rubber meets the road is is in the budgets you know in the allocations uh the allocation of resources in government programs and uh for for us little old u f o people out here in the hinterlands we it doesn't seem to bother us that You know, government money is going to be spent one way or another. We don't even think about that for the most part. But for the people in the Pentagon, for the people in – for the military industrial complex, you know, that receive the money for these programs, that subject is dead serious. In fact, I can – I I hearken back to um, something I noticed in a wonderful book called UFOs in Government by uh some some top ufo researchers but the remark was that uh the head of sac uh general curtis LeVay, told his people don't don't even think about ufos don't bring it up because we don't want any resources being taken from our very serious programs of protecting the united states you know of developing the strategic air command and i i think it's it's possible that Uh, LeMay's attitude was based more on allocation of resources rather than protecting a core secret. But, of course, you know, he may have known about a core secret if there was one.
0: Yeah, I can understand that where if someone's not coming forward with, with something, then they're probably on the take or they know. And I can understand with with those of us that are sort of on the outskirts, it's very easy for us to speculate, well, they're not taking action because they know, or they're coming hard on us for X, Y, and Z reason because, again, they know. And then there's also a level of, you know, either they do know or they don't and they're just acting out, you know, however it is to protect their jobs and their interests.
1: Well, I think that we can be confident that the data is being collected. Now, whether it's being retained is another question. But you have NORAD, you have radar, you have satellites, you have all kinds of instrumentation that leads me to think, and I I don't think it's unreasonable to believe that our government basically knows everything that's coming into the Earth's atmosphere, coming in or through the Earth's, Earth's atmosphere. Now whether they retain the data or not is another question. For, for example, they may, they may be deleting it or shredding it uh, because they don't think that it's relevant to their mission. Or it could be that there are masses of data that are there and haven't been analyzed.
0: And as the uh, debate goes on, it seems like now the question is not extraterrestrial but more ultra-terrestrial. And um, before I ask where you stand on that, it's the sort of thing where maybe we're not or we're told that or we're not seeing any evidence, you know, be it whether it's being kept or we're just not receiving it of craft entering the atmosphere is probably because they're, you know, coming in through like wormholes or such like that speculation in our atmosphere already. Um where do you stand on on that as far as the ultra terrestrial hypothesis as opposed to the extraterrestrial
1: well it's as, it's as good as any other hypothesis but the, but the factor of the matter is that as citizens at our level we just don't have answers to that you know we don't know well we don't have solid confirmation that our visitors are extraterrestrial in origin or if they're ultra terrestrial or maybe it could be something we haven't even thought of okay but the the impulse of people that had uh, really substantive sightings and of investigators that had investigated a number of really really good sightings these close encounters of the third kind they their impulse was to think that the origin was extraterrestrial Now, where you get confirmation and proof of that is if uh, one or more flying saucers or craft were recovered, and you end up with some live aliens, and those aliens tell you where they came from. You know, did they come from Zeta Reticuli or some other star, as is in the current UFO folklore? But if you have a situation like that, then you have proof and you have confirmation, and you, unless the beings are out and out lying, then you have evidence of of extraterrestrial visitation. But the phenomenon itself is so strange and so odd and has so many qualities that we are really just having trouble comprehending that, you know, we we tend to want to drift toward the ultra-terrestrial explanation, but we don't even know what that means.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. It's that sort of like the Bigfoot question of simply um, answering a mystery with another mystery. I can understand that conundrum.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you have craft that disappear or appear. You have beings that have been reported to go through walls. Uh, You have um, telepathic communication. You have experiencers. Being uh, having information implanted in their minds, downloaded into their minds. I mean, a lot of this is just, it just sounds like science fiction, okay? But if if the government, hypothetically, if they recovered a craft and they recovered live aliens and they have one or more as a guest of the UFO government, uh, of the uh, U.S. government, at Area 51 or wherever, and that being tells you that he's from zeta reticuli well that's that's an extraterrestrial explanation now it's also possible that there's more to it than that maybe other things are going on that aren't extraterrestrial and we just don't understand it
0: Um, is there anything else that you would like to close on before uh, we close the MUFON chapter and then go on into the majestic 12 documents because I would love to discuss those with you
1: I encourage anyone that would like to learn more about field investigation uh to uh join MUFON or buy a copy of the Field Investigator Manual. I think it's very very good. It's been it's been developed over many years. And if you join MUFON and get copies of the UFO journal, then you'll be getting a lot of information about the kinds of investigations that MUFON investigators have been engaging in. And you'll get a lot of information about current UFO issues.
0: Now, with the Majestic 12 documents, when I first heard about them was in reference to uh, Stanton Friedman. I heard that he had presented them and he was very adamant and supportive of them and what they could mean. Later, uh, criticism and scrutiny came under the filing format of the documents that they did not line up with, I believe, how the military uh formatted and and documented their files and because of that i think the the documents themselves came under a lot of uh scrutiny and and cross-examination but i'd still nonetheless whether they are hoaxed or or real just simply you know be it fabricated or if there is a potential for a grain of truth in them by some means I i do find the subject Fascinating, extremely fascinating. What do you know so far as the Majestic 12 documents, and what is your personal opinion on the matter?
1: Well, the MJ-12 affair, as I understand it, began in in the early 1980s. And uh, it began with a document that Linda Howe was shown by Richard Doty on, like, on uh, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. And that's that's what's been known as the Carter briefing document. And that in that document, MJ12, or Majestic 12, was mentioned. And uh, I I discussed this in my in my paper, uh, my research paper on my blog. Uh, also, Richard Doty passed a an amended or a, a a version of a telex that was meant to be passed on to to uh, paul benowitz and in that telex which has become known as the aquarius telex uh, it does mention mj-12 so those were the first two mentions of mj-12 before the actual eisenhower briefing document and the truman forestall menu uh, me- memo surfaced in later in the 80s There are they're Two people that are that are key to this, uh, Bill Moore and Richard Doty. Now, Bill Moore was a former school teacher, and he became a UFO investigator. He was a co-author with Charles Berlitz of a book called The Philadelphia Experiment, and this little book called The Roswell Incident. And Moore and Stanton Friedman did a lot of investigating and interviewing of witnesses you know in in the roswell incident and they became convinced that the government had recovered an extraterrestrial craft well in the early 1980s moore was recruited by afosi to inform on other ufo researchers and ufo groups he was probably recruited by richard doty now it's my Belief now. I don't have proof of this, but I I think that Richard Doty probably told Bill Moore that this MJ12 group existed, and so uh, Moore uh, was doing a lot of an. uh, He was building up clients. He was building up contacts in the government and in the military, and most of his contacts became what today is known as the Aviary, and Moore believed that he was really burrowing into possibly some really deep secrets that the government has been keeping at at the very highest levels at the level of the national security council you know Stanton Friedman and Bill Moore and Jamie Chandaray, they it's believed that they came up with a list of most of the people on the MJ12 list in the Eisenhower briefing document and that's why that's one of the reasons why they've been suspected and Bill Moore particularly has been suspected of of uh hoaxing the you know the MJ12 documents. Well, uh I believe it was 1984, 1985 when Jamie Shanderae received uh a roll of film uh on his front doorstep and he and Bill Moore they developed the film and and lo and behold we had what's become known as the Eisenhower briefing document, and the Truman-Forestall memo. And on the face of it, for people that are not experienced in, in reading government documents, on the face of them, they looked absolutely explosive, stating that the government had recovered a flying saucer in Roswell, that it had more than one UFO recovery. Uh, it talked about alien bodies and a list of scientists and government and military people that had been assembled uh, to to study uh, the issue and to manage the UFO issue. And this became known as Majestic 12. So this is where the MJ-12 legend began. And in 1988, uh, Bill Moore released the MJ-12 documents that were extant at that time, along with along with Timothy Good, because Timothy Good was a well-known UFO author and he he had received a copy of them, I don't know if from the same source or a different source, but he had received a copy of them and he was getting ready to release them. So these documents came out in in the late 80s, around 1988, and they created quite a stir. I mean it was like a hydrogen bomb in my Humble opinion, it was like a hydrogen bomb being dropped on the UFO community. And some investigations were conducted. Actually, uh, the FBI and security people in the government weren't sure if if uh, classified information had had been leaked, and uh, a uh, an investigation was undertaken. And the FBI uh, went around uh, looking for. For evidence that you know these the documents were either real or fake or looking for evidence of MJ-12 well they they didn't find any or if they did they haven't disclosed that. and Richard Doty himself has has said that he actually underwent two uh, lie detector tests and he was cleared uh, because he he claims that he had nothing to do with the creation of the documents so the origin of the MJ-12 documents themselves is a mystery, and that's one of the things that really intrigues me is, even though the Eisenhower briefing document and the Truman-Forestall memo and possibly the Cutler-20 memo, even though they may be fabrications, they may be forgeries, what I want to know is who created them and why. And then we, you, know, you get into theory and the speculation about that. That's a subject in and of itself. Now... I contend that the MJ-12 affair basically is occurring almost to this day still. Because when we look at history, we had the original set of the MJ-12 documents come out in the late 80s. Then we had Bob Azar come out making similar allegations and claiming that he saw similar type documents on Area 51. Then we had the alien autopsy film, which has been claimed, even though it has been demonstrated to be a hoax. Uh, uh, Ray Santilli claims that it's it's a representation of of the autopsy because the quality of the film was too poor to actually show the real film. And then we also had the Psalm One one manual come out, which described how personnel were to recover UFO material and, and bodies. And then we had, uh, in addition to that, <clears throat> we had a whole large set of documents come to, to a person by the name of Timothy Cooper. And many of these documents today, uh, can be found on the majestic.com website, which was, has been created by Ryan Wood and his father, uh, uh Bob wood, so we had that in, in the nineties and then in the two thousands we had we had serpo this description of this you know close encounters the third kind kind of scenario where American military people traveled to this distant planet uh in an exchange program we had that and then we've 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 even as late as two thousand 17 We've had what I call the ultra top secret document, which is not really very impressive on the face of it. But I mention it because there has been this pattern of, quote unquote, leaked documents over a very long period of time. In fact, upwards of 40 years, 35, 40 years. So the question in my mind is, what the heck is going on here?
0: Yeah, I've heard of Project Serpo, and that is an interesting uh, rabbit hole in itself. Um, just for the listener's benefit, can you give us a brief refresher on who uh, Richard Doty is for a moment, if you don't mind?
1: Richard Doty is known because he was he was employed on Kirtland Air Force Base from around 1979, 1980, until 1984. And he was, uh, I believe... An enlisted person uh, working. He was either a certified AFOSI agent or he was working with AFOSI. I say that because I I haven't seen actual documentation, but he was with AFOSI, and he claims that he was briefed uh, along with some other people about the UFO about the government's secret UFO program. And he's described in another uh, in a number of interviews on the internet uh, how he had been involved in various UFO investigations. Now, Doty is well-known, and he's even notorious because of the so-called Paul Benowitz affair. And Paul Benowitz was a person that lived uh, directly next to Kirtland Air Force Base. And Mr. Benowitz was a businessman. He was trained in physics and science, and he ran a company called Thunder Scientific, uh, which produced, they produced equipment for U.S. government uses, like on submarines. But uh, Paul Benowitz was on his back porch at night looking at Kirtland Air Force Base, looking at the Kirtland Air Force Base area, and he saw things flying around, and he believed that they were UFOs. So he approached Kirtland Air Force Base personnel and said, hey, you've got UFOs uh, flying over your Air Force Base. Well, this kicked in in an investigation, namely by AFOSI, but other government agencies got involved as well. I believe that the National Security Agency became involved and perhaps even the FBI And the reason for that is because mr benowitz was he was uh viewing activities on the base some of which were highly classified to begin with and may have been conventional he was viewing things he was recording he was electronically recording things uh, that he was viewing on the base and this became a concern for the security people on on kirtland so Doty became involved in getting to know Mr. Benowitz, and Paul Benowitz had been involved in UFO investigations from from the 70s on, and he would he took a great interest in the cattle mutilation issue in the late 70s and early 80s, and he became convinced that there were these UFOs uh, visiting Kirtland Air Force Base, that uh, the Archuleta Mesa area had a secret UFO, US government base there inside the mountain. And he became convinced that aliens were, you know, they were messing with us and he developed these theories and ideas of how it could be counteracted. So Richard Doty uh, became infamous because uh, a lot of people want to think that Doty was responsible for Paul Benowitz basically having a nervous breakdown and having to be hospitalized and institutionalized. Now, I I wasn't there, I don't know, but I've studied this very, very closely. In fact, I have an extremely detailed timeline of this whole affair. And it's my contention that Paul Benowitz was well on his way to going over, going off the deep end by the time that Richard Doty ever became involved. And Richard Doty is—he's uh, no longer with the government. He said that his security agreement lapsed uh, after 20 years, and uh, he he lives in New Mexico and he gives interviews on on internet programs. In fact, he gave one just a few nights ago. So he's he's active in the, in the UFO community right now.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. How I heard that you know he was probably a catalyst, which led to uh, the Paul Benowitz's breakdown, and I, I really myself don't know what to make of that as well. It, it seems like rather nefarious, and uh, but he he still shows, but Richard Doty himself he still shows up and and you know I do have to give him some credence for that as well. You know still showing coming into the lines den like that on what speculated could be wrongdoing on his part.
1: Well, you know I'm not sure about now. I'm not a I'm not advocating Doty, but I'm not a Richard Doty hater, and let me tell you why. Richard Doty was he, he was employed by the United States government in the United States Air Force in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. One part of their job is to help maintain security of classified programs, but they have a counterintelligence function within their within their department, within their agency. And if they come across something that they think could be a threat to the security of one or more classified programs, then they have a job to do, okay? And that job can be surveilling someone. It can be any number of things. And this is where this idea of disinformation really became prevalent in the UFO community because a lot of people think that, that a Richard Doty was disinforming Paul D- Benowitz. And there probably was a certain amount of that going on, but at the same time, Richard Doty was in the military and he was following orders. What happens is, and Richard Doty has described this, but it, it makes perfectly good sense that when they have a situation they report it to headquarters, which is in which at the time was i believe it was in washington d c They report it to headquarters headquarters requests a plan of action, they formulate a plan of action, and then that plan is either approved or disapproved or modified at headquarters and some kind of plan to counteract the uh activities of Paul Benowitz was put together, and Richard Doty was part of the execution of that program so some people want to think that richard doty was this loose cannon was this you know this rogue a f o s i person and and I don't know maybe he was, but I tend to think not. I tend to think that he was probably executing uh the plan so to speak
0: yeah that's that's understandable I can understand that so um overall if i'm pretty sure you went over this before but just to recap what ultimately do you feel that we learned as far as large picture moving forward from the majestic 12 affair what can we take
1: from it the fundamental question is has the u.s government military recovered one or more ufos have they recovered alien beings have they even been in contact with or had relationships with alien beings if that's the case then i think that the basic messages in the mj12 documents are essentially correct but something that some people have trouble with is they they look at the eisenhower briefing document and they see that it's that it's not genuine it's not authentic so therefore mj12 is a hoax MJ-12 never existed. But there are two issues here. The document itself can be a fabrication, and yet it may contain essentially correct information in it. Are you following me? Like, for example, I could forge a letter supposedly from you, and it could be a fabrication, but it it could contain some correct information. And because it's a forgery, it doesn't mean that you don't exist yeah sort of like so, how our
0: broken clock is right twice a day
1: a little bit and you know this is just a distinction that i'm trying to make because some mm-hmm. some people go to one extreme or the other it's i know the the woods uh ryan and bob wood are very pro mj-12 stanton friedman was very pro mj-12 and i actually sat down with stanton friedman a couple of times at at mufon symposiums i sat I sat eyeball to eyeball with him and asked him some very direct questions based on the research that I was doing at the time, and he would just shrug his shoulders and say, "Well, it doesn't matter because the MJ12 documents are real, okay? But there, are, there are enough objections, enough things have been pointed out with most of these do- documents that have that have really been scrutinized. There, are, there are a lot of documents that haven't, but of the ones that have been scrutinized, it's been demonstrated that they're almost certainly forgeries. Now, the question is, why or how did that come about? I mean, there are any number of possible explanations, which I'm eventually going to explain on my blog and what will eventually become my book. But there are a whole lot of possibilities.
0: Yeah, I I find that quite interesting. And and moving forward, you know, I always have a soft spot for the Majestic 12 you know, affair and the whole thing, because I I do find it deeply romantic as far as um, just the overall culture and the deep lore of the ufology, so forth. I know that a lot of people like to, you know, there are certain tentpoles to um, every community, being it, you know, the Roswell crash, uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film, the exorcist case for the the ghost hunters and such like that and among them i i do find you know the, the majestic 12 to it holds a special place for me and i i do i do find it quite interesting and and any more looking into it i i definitely welcome that and thank you for taking the time to uh explain that and and really i i guess iron out all those fine details for us that on an initial pass might have been missed before
1: well, I barely scratched the surface, <laughs> and uh you know i'm I'm retired now, and I can devote myself full time to this and it's my passion you know i'm I'm fascinated by the m j twelve controversy and and all of the things that that could be connected to it.
0: I guess we're we're just about ready to wrap up right now, and I thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me. And um, one thing that I would like to ask is, are there any additional cases and accounts out there that you find uh, genuinely intriguing, no matter what they are, be they in UFOlogy or otherwise, or some other field?
1: I think probably, in my humble opinion, probably the most important UFO case That I know of is the Cashlandrum case, and the reason why I say that is because I believe that it definitely happened. Uh, The people were affected by it. Uh, The craft was in some distress. A number of helicopters were involved, and I think what happened was it was actually a a U.S. government craft, and the people that have investigated in depth, namely John Schusler, he would dig and dig and dig and hit a brick wall because this is probably, this is probably one of the most highly classified technology programs in existence in the United States.
0: I think, is this the one where the, the, um, the witnesses had radiation burns? And their their car had radiation uh, damage on the top coats of paint, I believe.
1: Right. It, it happened in the, in the Houston vicinity, All you right. know, in in East Texas. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Very, very important case. Very important, and and it's kind of halfway been forgotten. And I don't know if if we really seriously tried to dig into it more if if we get any more information, but I see it as probably. as as a premier case in the UFO field.
0: Anything on the outside of the UFO field that really tickles your interests?
1: Well, I've been very interested in in Soviet espionage and what I've uh, come to know as direct measures, Soviet direct measures. And uh, the Soviet Union and the CIA were engaging in all kinds of shenanigans. There's... Uh, During, you know, during the Cold War and in the uh, 1960s and 70s, a document arose that became known as Field Manual 30-31B. And the U.S. Army has a a field manual known as FM 30-31, and it it concerns intelligence, intelligence. uh, connected to insurrection activity, and it's a manual on how the army goes about understanding and evaluating and dealing with with insurgents in third world countries. Well, a document arose, uh, showed up at the at the uh, uh, in, in Thailand, and it purported to be a, a, an appendix. To this field manual 30-31, it, it caused a little bit. Of, it caused a little bit of a problem because it started being spread around in different countries when people started looking at it. And there's a very important line in one of the paragraphs where it says, "Look, you know, at some point you may have to uh, cause, uh, you may have to engage in in violent activities. In other words, engage in false flag activities." Uh, that that aren't really created by the insurgents you know you create violent activities that can be blamed on the insurgents so this this document had to be well it was examined within the cia and the cia people namely richard helms had to go to congress and explain that the thing was a hoax it was it was a a fraudulent document it was it was fabrication a forgery created uh, presumably by the Soviet KGB, and that's one of the that's one of the more prominent examples in the Cold War. And I, I thought that was really interesting. You can see it on the internet.
0: It's a certain level where it sort of is its own thing as far as you know. Looking into, I mean, just as far as espionage fiction is always intriguing. Get the, you know, the James Bond novels and stuff like that, and we see it in video games, like with uh, this popular video game. Series that was called siphon filter and and stuff like that of, of these espionage s type things I think even um, there was this other one which was called uh you know anything Tom Clancy on it so espionage has always been sort of an intriguing topic that always garnishes a lot of uh, appreciation and and admiration and you know I I do love a good espionage tale
1: well it's it's great fun if you're reading about it. Or, or watching a movie about it It's it's dead serious if you're engaging in it
0: Oh yeah, definitely <laughs> Definitely Well, thank you so much for joining us I guess we'll go ahead and we'll wrap it up here Thank you so much for coming on uh, Where can people find you And where would you like for them to go To read your blog and your articles and your papers And stuff like that As well as get in contact with you Should they have any questions
1: Yes, I I'm easy to find My name is Tom Whitmore so, you want to go to tomwhitmoreblog.wordpress.com. That's tomwhitmoreblog.wordpress.com. I have I've published four research papers on the blog, and as I conduct research on the next paper, each week I give an update on the research that I'm doing, what I'm reading, what I'm researching. So, you can go to Tom Whitmoreblog. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Tom Whitmore, and I'm on Twitter as at Tom Tulsa. That's at Tom Tulsa.
0: Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us. We'll have a talk with you later.
1: Okay, thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me.